So greetings and welcome back to Hacked Off, the Sakarma podcast. This time round I'm joined by Dr. Danny Dresner, who is Academic Coordinator for Cybersecurity at the University of Manchester. That's it. I asked for a job title which neither sounded silly and would fit on a business card, so they printed it very small. Oh, excellent. That's that's the way to do it. Uh, I had a friend who demanded his job title was King of the Hill Above the Border. <laughs> he said it as a joke, so we printed it on the business card and he was stuck with it. So, Danny, thank you so much. I know you're a busy man. Thank you so much for uh, coming and talking to us today. Uh, we're going to start the way that we start with absolutely everybody. Um, I'm going to ask you to tell me a bit about yourself. Take me right back. How did you get into this strange world of computing? And then we will move up to what you're doing today. So tell me about younger Dr. Danny Dresner. Well, I suppose uh, a lot of it sounds a bit like the story that Yul Brynner always tells in the, always tells because it's a film, uh, in The Magnificent Seven about the guy who took off all his clothes and jumped into a bed of cactus. And when they said, why did you do that? And he said, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> so when I was at school, uh, we, we didn't have anything like a computer. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, we didn't even have pocket calculators. Right. Uh, the nearest we got was this sort of mechanical thing. And if you were very lucky and your parents had a few quid, it was a little mechanical thing, which you had a... Did you have a like lever a, down the side? Yeah, uh, not, not a lever, it had a sort of like a crochet hook. Oh, right. And you dragged down, the, uh, dragged down the various columns. And there wouldn't uh, have been a photocopier, there would have been a bandograph machine. Oh, yeah, abs- oh, absolutely, yeah. and they smelt so yeah, good. And they leaked all the time. Yes, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah, we always smelt, we smelt, we smelt that, we used to learn by, by smell. We never actually read the handouts. <laughs> but, uh, it was probably only in my final years of school, mm-hmm. uh, that there was one, which we had to share, Commodore 64, uh, which we started making Hitchhiker's Guide and Star Trek games on. Oh, these are text games? Textual-based games. See, this is absolutely fascinating because we always ask people what their first memory of a first computer was. So far, we've not had anybody who's doubled up, and we haven't. I do not think we've had... Uh, a Commodore 64 yet, uh, and you are not the first person to say, I started by making text-based games at yeah. all. Yeah. But you have got the Hitchhiker's Guide one, sounds cool, tell me about that. Well, it was well, it was a mixture of Star Trek, Hitchhiker's Guide, and probably a bit of uh, Doctor Who. Right. Um, and all, the only, actually, I'll be honest, the only thing I remember about it was that we could never finish it, because we could never actually do it elegantly enough so that we didn't actually fill up the, uh, the memory. <laughs> so you'd sit for half an hour waiting for the thing to load up from the tape. Yep. Uh, it would load up, uh, you'd write one more line, and then it would be m- memory full. Uh, and then you would spend the rest of the time editing. Because we wanted to, actually, we did have one graphic. We wanted to have one graphic because I had the Star Trek or the Starfleet technical manual. Oh, yeah, I had that. It, it had a kind of reddish kind of cover to it, if I remember. That, that's it. Yeah. Red cardboard insert. Yeah. With, with um, I'm, I'm sad enough to admit now that I've actually still got it. Oh, I can't I've actually still got it. Ago. But in those days, I used to do stupid things like, you know, like color things in. 
So uh, yes, yeah, so so it is. So you coloured in the warp drive diagram in the middle. Oh, that was the, that was the most important thing, mm. and just having that little bit of knowledge as to uh, as to how to draw a, draw a graph of time distorting. Warp yes, the drive. curve. The, yes, yes the, the curve is it accelerates to where well, you can never get to warp ten. Absolutely. Yeah, and the one the, for me the page that I remember was the pad, the P A D D, and they would be walking around with this this pad, and I remember, I'll never forget it. Said you know. Though the pad is limited in functionality, theoretically you could fly the Enterprise from the pad alone. And I'm not just making the story up. I, I literally thought I, I want to live long enough to have something like that, which I can hold in my hand. And now I have an iPad. Well, I was obviously more warlike because I used to use the plans to make phasers out of Lego. <laughs> what happens next? Uh, then, of course, it got to the stage where I started doing exams and all of that kind of stuff and had to start thinking about the future. So this thing called, uh, I think it was called an UCA form in those UCAS days. UCAS uh, No, this is, this is pre-UCAS. This was UCA. Uh, yes, I think it was right. UCCA. Can't remember what yeah. it stood for, but this was the, the UCA form. Well, of course, all, all handwritten and you had to find five choices. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went from the, the natural progression of uh, writing games about uh, Star Trek, Hitchhikers and Doctor Who to apply to do stuff like astronomy uh, and astrophysics and various combinations of which. I can't quite remember where. Somewhere down the line, I also put in the rather more practical uh, combined studies of applied physics and computer science. Mm -hmm. I'm making myself sound extremely clever here. I am not. I did my applied physics and my computer science, and don't tell the head of school at computer science now that I got through them essentially by avoiding all the maths. Mm-hmm. I just love the beautiful descriptions uh, that these subjects kind of co- contain in them. Uh, and if I was really clever, uh, I really envy the real mathematicians who, to whom mm-hmm. it is another language. Uh, and I just look at this stuff and think I would like to be able to describe things, you know, with such elegancy. Uh, so I just make up for it by making, turning them into silly rhymes and rewriting the lyrics of, uh, of Queen and the like. And that was very similar to me. Mine was laser physics and optoelectronics, theoretical physics. And I think, I think I had eight choices. I think it was more than five in Scotland and, and I threw in English at the bottom just as a, just as a kind of safety net. So I went the other way around. Because one in six year English became a lot more about reading books and thinking about ideas rather than just answer the question. And um, I was scared that if I did the physics degree, eventually the maths would become too hard for me. I could understand the concepts and I was very good at maths in general, but I thought, oh, it's eventually going to ramp up and get too hard. It's almost like we've gone opposite directions, but ended up in the same place. So you went off, you did the... I did applied physics, applied physics science, computer science with a really important, I mean, at the time, at the time, I know when we saw it on the list with, oh, when do we have to do this? There was a compulsory unit on science, technology and society. Um, oh, right. but That's it turned out to be possibly the most single inspiring topic. And it re- and that together with a, the computer science modules, uh, on information systems, kind of taking in the big picture. Those were the ones that really started opening up things to me. I mean, I'd never learned about scientific methods before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you know, techniques of thinking and, you know, people like Arthur Kersler and Karl Popper and all of that, all of that kind of stuff. And those were, those were really my Damascene moments. And coupled together with my third year, where I actually chose to do a project on holography. Mm-hmm. 
and there was this really shiny um, high-tech optical bench, but it was in plastic, wrapped in plastic, and I wasn't allowed to touch it. <laughs> so I had to do holography experiments uh, in a tower block. I had to come in at night because it was next to the Mancunian Way, and so the vibrations were too much for the film <laughs> to do them during the day. And I, I had to make it my holography bench with bits of uh, bits of sawn up girder mm-hmm. uh, and and blue tack. Um, and so, so it, it, it hacked together. It, 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 it was a hack. Yeah. It was a hack, and it it was real. It was real problem. It was real problem solving, and staring at stuff. Um, and it was a bit like I, mean, I then went on to actually work with Ferranti, and Ferranti actually got into trouble at one point because they costed out a big project. Um, uh, with the idea being that projects will fail, you'll test, retest, rework, and what have you. Um, but it worked first time, um, and no one could believe it. Uh, it I mean, to this day, I don't know if it's just kind of right place, right time. Um, but the first holograms I made worked. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, they, they were all, and it was, um, you know, budget. There wasn't a budget. Basically, you had to go, and every time you wanted to do a hologram, you had to kind of go to the lab assistant, and they'd, they'd cut you a little corner of expensive film, and, uh, and, and, and then, get, then give it to you. And, uh, I was, I was just totally, I was just totally amazed. And I was really sorry, actually, I hadn't made holograms of something a little bit more interesting than the bunch of keys that I had in my pocket. No, a hologram that works is a hologram that works. What was the, the, the computing element to this course then? Was this, uh, was oh. this the kind of day, days where, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, every scientist had to suddenly learn COBOL or Pascal or, or something so they could process the data that they were using? We had two, we had two main languages. Uh-huh. Uh, Erlang? Algol. Algol. Algol, Algol 68. Oh. Algol 68. We will stick a link in the show notes to Wikipedia for that one. Thank you very much. You've got the most retro, you get the prize for the most retro language. Oh, it, it gets worse. Not, not only Algol 68 and, and of course Cobol. I really enjoyed, yeah, Co- there's something about Cobol I really, I really enjoyed. Possibly because you could write so much without actually having ever done something and get loads of marks just for all, just, just for the structure. Um, but of course the challenge was that it was punch cards. It was all on punch cards. It was only just as I was leaving what was then Manchester Pauline, which is now Manchester Met, uh, that they actually got t- terminals in. Um, and I, I, I remember one night uh, riding home on my moped, uh, going up Cheatham Hill Road, and I suppose if Hollywood filmed this, they would have superimposed a, a printout of the road uh, sort of going up the road, and I suddenly realised where the semicolon was missing uh, that was stopping the compilation. So I turned round, went back, repunched that one card, and put it back in the hopper. And, and of course, you have to leave it overnight yeah, sure. uh, just to find out. Usually, to find to, to find out uh, even whether it would compile. Never mind whether it would actually would actually run. Wow. And uh, what frightens me, um, I just assume people get a little bit interested, but uh, the, dare I call them kids, the, stu- the, the, the youth today, the students today, haven't even heard of punch cards. No, absolutely not. Mm. Absolutely not. We will have to find a picture of that and stick it in the notes as well. Um, okay, so you've got your degree. You've got some programming under your belt. Mm. You presumably at this point need to make a choice. Do I go physics or do I go computing? You know, how, what happened? Again, what happened next? Well, in those days, I don't know whether they still do it, but uh, we were all told about the milk round. Uh, and big companies would come round and uh, you'd sort of 
put in your CV or fill in an application they form. They still do this. And they do sort of sort of load, loads of interviews, and you sort of go from interview to interview. And there was a firm called Ferranti. Now... Now, Ferranti rings a distinct bell. Oh, it yeah. was massive. It was massive. They had about 12 sites, you know, a couple of thousand people per site all around Manchester and all over the country. Um, you know, they they, um, they had stuff going up in uh, up in Scotland because of the submarines, stuff in yeah. Bristol. Um Oh, it, it was a it was a huge concern. I mean, basically, it was uh, the equivalent of you know GC Marconi Plessy. Mm-hmm. They were one of the big de- defence contractors at the time. Um, of course, when I went for my interview, um, the, well, there were two things. Firstly, I was really enjoying writing the actual thesis that went together with this holography, uh, and I just thought, wouldn't it be great if you could do this sort of learning and writing for a job? Mm-hmm. And you could have knocked me over with a feather when I looked in this big catalogue of what you can do for jobs. I don't know what it was called. It was some sort of standard book, the careers service. Oh, yes, I remember there. And they were big, hefty books. The whole whole thing. Amazing thing in those days, it was a bit like catalogues. They'd actually give you one to take home. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it must have cost a fortune in printing. And, you know, as for the poor rainforests, they must have churned up to, to make the paper. Until they got to the state that we're in today. <laughs> yeah, well, gosh, yes. <laughs> Phone books and career advice books. <laughs> if we only knew, if we'd only known. So there was this thing called technical writing. So yeah, yeah. I went to, and sure enough, Ferranti had a big appetite for technical writers. And I, you know, passed the aptitude test. But um, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but the... Fellow says to me, he says, he said, do you want to go into the civil or the military side of stuff? And of course, I was a student. It's interesting. I just came back from a big competition, the nine twelve, the Atlantic mm-hmm. Challenge nine twelve competition in London, and they had we had a terrific address by uh, former Secretary General of NATO, Lord Robertson who apparently never thought he'd get to quite where he was today on the basis that earlier in his career he had actually stood outside a nuclear missile base with a ban the bomb uh, placard. So, of course, when they asked, you know, conscientious uh, student uh, Dresner where he'd like to work, would I want to work on the military systems or the civil systems? It was no, no, nothing at all, no, no choice here. I want to go and work on the, uh, the, the civil systems. And after a couple of years on road transport, which actually has now come back, well, not necessarily to bite me, but to haunt me in a very, very nice way. Although, actually, the, the odd combination, the, the, the project group worked on road transport and printing. Uh, an opportunity came up in the military training division, uh-huh. and I, I went to, over to write uh, software manuals uh, for the military training division. And that's when I sort of started on uh, getting involved in quality management uh, and, of course, all the, all the various security elements so things really started to kick off there, uh, just in time for me to kind of move eventually to the uh, to the National Computing Centre. Ah, yes, I want to talk about that. So, mm. so you let me get this right. You'd you done these software manuals. Presumably, you can't tell me what they're for. Uh, well, I can tell you, but of course, I'd have to shoot you afterwards. Uh, yeah, so it's always the problem. Okay, so you've got this interest in security. You go and join the National Computing Centre. Before we talk about you joining the National Computing Centre, tell me a little bit about the history of the National Computing Centre, because a lot of us of a certain age remember it very fondly, and it was a very important project at the time, and pretty much ahead of its ahead of its time in, in, in the vision that it had, I think. So give me a little bit about the background of that, and then tell me how you joined and slotted into it with your your fledgling security interests. Well, back in 1966, they had the, they were talking about kind of what, We'd probably laugh at now, but to the, their computers were, you know, were really coming into the age. 
Um, I mean, if you think about sort of not where sort of the history of the University of Manchester and 1948, the, the stored programme. So we're talking about, uh, uh, you know, less than, less than 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the computer had, had come about and this was now being used seriously in business. Not quite sure when it was that IBM said the world would only need four of them or yeah, whatever. IBM, but, uh, frames, yeah. but there were so many organisations who were now starting to use them and so many organisations trying to sell the technology um, some bright person in, in the Wilson government basically said, what we really need is an organization which can see how we can get the best of it, um, best of the technologies, how we can use them you know, effectively and efficiently nationally. as user organizations. Yeah, nationally. N- nationally. Yeah, and and, and that, 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 was, that, was, that was the difference. That was the difference. How can we actually use them to, you know, to, make, uh, to make improvements uh, to run councils, to run factories, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to, to run to, to, to run offices. So they was, saw what these uh, mega corporations that had access to them were. They understood, you know, this is where you had reams and reams and reams of people on paper just to do very functional tasks that we consider now, and they obviously understood there was potential. But it's interesting, you know, we always see government programs nowadays and I always worry that they rush off in one direction and somebody rushes off in another direction. But you're right, this was a very concerted, focused plan, wasn't it? It was very, very strictly about the use. It, about the use. It wasn't about the, about the design. They'd leave the design and the technology to other people. It was about how you would actually do good stuff with them. And that's when they started to generate essentially what became standards mm. probably more uh, you know dare i say um more practically based than some of the stuff that would have been coming out of bsi uh, at the time because these 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 were the lessons learned by people who were actually trying to communicate with each other and someone would have an idea have a business have a business idea now i mean so when we look at kind of rapid application development and agile and all of that kind of stuff people Waterfall. you know well well even even this was sort of the kind of waterfall techniques. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so now looking at it, it might have been slow uh, and laborious, but if we hadn't had that care and that level of detail uh, that paid attention to, we wouldn't know what was important and what isn't mm-hmm. uh, and how that we now sort of chunk, th- chunk things up into, into, into sprints, for example, and uh, you know, sort of uh, rapid sets of rapid sets of requirements. It was all of those lessons learned, kind of moving forward to deliver uh, computing, to be able to test, and also to involve. Uh, and I think this may be. I mean, this is a tra- something which I think will come up later as well. Uh, sort of, kind of communities of practice mm-hmm. and communities of involvement, because um, one of the great things that the National Computing Centre did, and I, it sounds silly when you sort of start talking about it out loud, but they went through various phases, produced various guidelines and reports, which essentially said, wouldn't it be a good idea if the people who make computers talk to the people who want to use Use them and involve, because this was a completely separate role, and it often is, the people who are actually involved in the purchasing process and actually get people working working together as communities, because of the different uh, different areas of interest, I think we've lost that a little bit. I mean, I, I've years ago, I don't haven't done many for a couple of years, but I used to be very involved in humanitarian hackathons, where we would be set a challenge. You know, one year we tried to save the bees. Apparently, there's a problem with bees. How do you count the bees? Um, and one uh, year, very close to my heart, we did a 
we did an event where we tried to not so you can never solve the problem, but help the problem of, of earthquakes. You know, and earthquakes are a major, obviously, <laughs> seems silly, they are a danger to human life. But um, a lot of the problems are getting the the aid into people where they need it. The, all the infrastructure goes straight down. It's just gone. There are no telecommunications. You cannot have a central place. I mean, now with GPS and stuff, you can do that a bit more, but you still can't. Sometimes you need to rapidly be able to say, don't send the trucks down that road. They won't be going anywhere. So we created this application um, one team went off and they were very focused on usability and using the biggest technology. And we went out and we actually trialed it with earthquake first responders. And it had all the functionality in the world, but the kind of report came back saying, cannot hit the submit button while climbing over rubble. This button is too small. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think developers sometimes and companies and even startups get away from the idea of usability. Uh, because they just want to have the latest, flashiest thing. So, you know, it's almost sad that we've lost that 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 lesson, but maybe we're just not working as a concerted core. I think, I mean, there was this jump, jumping several tracks, but uh, this is now what people are starting to realise kind of with security, yeah. that um, when people have been talking about, you know, a, a security community, they've been talking about the experts, uh, and it needs to go much further because when, when it's particularly with cyber security, it tends to kind of then devolve yet again into technology yep. questions. And we seem to be really bad at combining technology and all the other factors together. We seem to be really bad at also explaining it to people because some of these concepts, I think, you know, you can grasp them. There are analogies. But we almost want to protect ourselves and go, oh, it's very complicated, very complicated thing. And it, it just seems a shame that we, we moan about users being stupid. A lot of the time you go, oh, well, it's the user that is not clever. And it's like, no, your job is to facilitate the user to use it. Go and ask them and you'll find out that you're doing it. What you've got in your head is not the way that human beings think. Okay, so that, let's bring it all back a little bit, Danny. So you've joined the National Computing Centre. You've got the security interest. How did the security interest flourish? Well, the, the funny thing was, was uh, uh, as seems to be the, sort of such a common thing, it, was, it wasn't necessarily through intention. Um, I wanted to do good stuff, National Computing Centre. It was never actually part of a government, but it was a non-profit distributing uh, organisation uh, based on, uh, you know, on education, uh, consultancy training, and the bit I was working for on uh, on software, which was generally b- there to make things better and uh, more effective and more efficient. And so I'd gone there to essentially you know, document and write manuals for the software. But because I'd had the experience back at the Ferranti days of um, preparing for MOD quality inspections, uh, I got quite into this quality management stuff. All right, okay. Uh, and it was something you, you could you could really believe in because mm-hmm. it was about kind of not wasting. It was about getting the right talents in. It was okay. it was it was about teamwork. It was about the communication. It was about people working, uh, you know, to, you know, towards great aspirations and uh, the, the total quality management type of stuff, which was all about uh, uh, making sure that you know where people had talents and good ideas. Uh, that they were, that they weren't shy, and that there were ways to bring those forward and, and actually and actually involve them. Uh, so I sort of started championing this uh, at the National Computing Centre. Uh, fortunately, I was sort of um, 
probably pushing at an open door because it was it was quite trendy at the time. So people actually were were, were quite supportive of the of the idea, and at mm-hmm. the time, people were starting to say that if they wanted to work with one organization or another, or even perhaps there were some organizations who said that if you got yourself organized better mm-hmm. so that you weren't making mistakes with your computer systems, uh, we would reduce the fees for support uh, and you know, money talks. So there was an organic need for equality standards to be developed. Absolutely. And a financial benefit. And, and you know, with a, with a financial benefit for, the, for those actually implementing them. What, of course, where this often fell down, and I think this is still the case with standards, is that people then sort of end up on the compliance route yeah. and do it to tick the box, forgetting what the original goal was. But, uh, but for me, I was producing the quality management stuff, getting involved, actually, and then being sort of sold out uh, uh, for, for time as a consultant to, uh, to help organisations actually uh, themselves, some of the membership organisations of the National Computing Centre. Now, this is before we have ISO 27000. This, oh, this, 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 yes. for granted. Now. Well, in the background, you know, meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile. Well, on me- another planet. On another planet. Uh, I think it was Shell and BP and the post office. I can't quite remember all the people involved. Uh, we're starting to look at this thing, particularly, I think it was called, it was called, it was at the Information Security Breaches Survey. Uh, now I'm going to show my age here because the National Computing Center actually started publishing this with an organization called the DTI, which is, oh, I've, I've lost track of which particular government organization now holds. I think it, the nearest equivalent is the, is base, isn't it? Business Enterprise Innovation and Science, or is it skills? Can't remember. Anyway, um, and they started producing this biannual survey. And being the technical writer, uh, the people who had been doing the survey work and collecting the data on behalf of DTI, uh, NCC, and uh, another another blast from the past, ICL. No, uh, yeah, that's not one that. I remember the International Computer Center, or oh, the International Computers Limited. Big, big, big. I mean, going back to my time at the Poly. We're getting uh, to the point. I'd need to see the logo now. Uh, <laughs> right. No, going back to my time at the Poly, my my punch cards went into a hopper and were run through a nine an ICL nineteen hundred T running the George three operating system. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I'd be I'll, I'll be really impressed actually if those actually are mentioned on Wikipedia. Uh, that's where I'm going tonight. Uh, to have a to walk down memory lane, but um, this was going back to 1994, mm-hmm. and so all the stats were there of the of the horror stories of everything from you know shared passwords, weak passwords, all the classic stuff, but also down to the fact that people would buy computer systems, leave all the boxes outside uh, to make sure that anybody who wanted to pinch a computer system could could, could steal to order because they knew exactly what was in the building. Uh, and of course, the classic thing as well is that uh, having had everything stolen, claimed on the insurance, got the new system, they left all the boxes outside again, so then you went to break in and oh. get the refreshed kit as well. So, uh, so that's I, how you upgrade. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I got I got in I got involved in uh, essentially editing that uh, that survey um, and started writing about security, uh-huh. and then started drilling that down into into practical measures. 
and realized that what I was doing in quality management and security management just dovetailed into into themselves. Okay. Uh, the BS 7799 British yeah, standard emerged, um, not so much as a standard of risk management, but a catalog of all good things that people ought to be doing. Uh, and that it's that's what morphed into what we now know and love as ISO 27001 which you know is still very good and is right for some organizations but um that actually was something which became quite top heavy because so many people were just doing it again tick the box for the compliance stuff yeah. not for security which is why we got involved or um we I got involved with a colleague uh, Richard Henson from the University of Worcester uh, and we got a grant from what was then the Technology Strategy Board uh, and developed a, well, I'll use the word, it is a standard, a, a governance standard for small businesses. Uh, we call it IASME, Information Assurance for SMEs, or pr- pronounced IASME. And the idea of that was so that small businesses could get a certificate, which is all very nice to show to people that they're, that they're serious, but it was always based on doing good things for security. So it's, it's much, pro, it's much, cyber essentials. Yeah, much, well, it's, it, it's the next stage up. It's mm. the next stage up. There's the in between. It, it, yeah. It's the, the good thing about cyber essentials. And I was really glad that we got involved with that is that we were able to fight the corner mm. of, of the small businesses because yes, <laughs> there is no doubt that cyber essentials, uh, you know, is not enough in today's age. Yeah. But it answers the most important question, which is where, you know, people, if you start talking security, uh, start talking cybersecurity, um, unless you are uh, really immersed and a cybersecurity expert in the first place, uh, people switch off. Yeah. Uh, and, and they can't, just can't help it. It's a natural, it's a survival mechanism well, they switching They might off. want ISO 27001. They might understand the, uh, the benefit that it brings. But then they sit down and they look at it and they go, we can't do that. It's just, it's way too much. And the one question that they will ask is, where do I start? Yeah. And that's why Cyber Essentials is so good. Because, yes, it doesn't purport to do everything, because it doesn't. But it, it's it's a good bang for the buck. I think the an NCSC certainly, they're looking to revise it, and this is right, because we need to get... It's you know, got think, a bit fragmented think among change. these awarding bodies, I but, think. Um, they have, but they have, so, but they rightly look to see, you know, what would make the biggest difference. And, uh, yes, when you start boiling it down and say that, yes, these, these are the things which will prevent, I think it's 80% of the low level automated attacks. Mm. Yep. But that's, that's fine. I, I always say it's like a garden fence. Garden fences will not stop people climbing over. Um, but you only have to worry about those few. You know, security is just is just a set of boundaries for for honest people. Yeah. So you only have to worry about the re, you know the, the persistent and the and, and the troublesome sort. And so if you can wipe out, uh, protect yourself, and, and put some basics in. And let's be honest, hackers themselves tend to be lazy. They go for what we call the lowest hanging fruit. You know, as long as you are tougher and you've got good locks, good gates, good shields up so to speak, they will move on and find the easier target because there will always be an easier target. So I always liked Cyber Essentials because I always felt in its truest ideal, it was to raise everybody up in the country to at least one baseline level and then revise and raise up a bit more rather than trying to do it all at once, rather than 
looking at ISO 27001 and going, oh, this doesn't fit for me. It's going to be too hard. I can't, don't know where to start. It's going to be too expensive. Let's just put, put it back on the shelf and hope that it, nothing bad ever happens. Um, I think it's got some really genuine value. And if you look at a document like the, you know, the 10 steps to cybersecurity that I think it was GCHQ then, wasn't it? Released it was, yes, yeah. Quite a long time ago. Originally, yeah, the, the CESG part of it, CESG the, the, the part, part that yeah. came, became yeah. the National Cybersecurity Center. They, um, you know, they, the short version of that document is very good. The breakdown of the, you know, each of the 10 steps totally baffled people. So they all wanted to do it. They all saw the value. The best bit was like the jigsaw puzzle graphic that they had. You're like, yeah, and uh, mobile devices, yes. Firewalls and ports, yes. You know, this is all good common sense stuff, but how do we implement it? And then something like Cyber Essentials comes along and says, well, you know, here is how you go through this process. You will at least know that you have achieved a baseline level of assurance. Um, And as you would say, it's not going to stop everybody. It's not going to fix people that are really motivated. But it always made me wonder how bad is it out there in the first place that even what I, from a technical background, consider to be so low level, why did this even exist? Then I sat down with one of the Cyber Essentials questionnaires. Um, I will not say from which awarding body, but you could literally reverse engineer out what the problems were mm-hmm. from just by looking at the questionnaires. And there was one element in it, um, I think it's in all of them, about, you know, uh, not allowing, and it always confused people, don't allow um, users uh, right access to areas of the disk where they, it can be executed, uh, fine. Um, don't allow it to go into the temporary directory. Um, and that was like the two kind of, that, that area, I think it's the malware section of it, um, people didn't get why that was important. And maybe there's, there's loads of failings in it, we can argue about it, we could do a whole episode on it. Um, but, you know, I would be on the phone to people and go, look, there's actually a reason for that. The first one means if somebody downloads an executable and it runs, that can't happen to them. And they said, well, you know, what's about this temporary directory? I'm like, well, see, the temporary directory is often A, not scanned by antivirus in the first place, or B, expects things to come in piece by piece. So some of the, a lot of, well, a lot of this malware that's a little bit more sophisticated brings itself in piece by piece and puts it together. And the place to do that is inside the temporary directory. And when you explain that to people, they go, oh, right, that makes perfect sense. That's something we'll go off and learn how to do. That's been the value of Cyber Essentials to me. Yes, it's great to be able to tick a charity and feel good that you've really done a good job for them or, Tick a, an SME or a startup or see people that have an appetite to, you know, start them on their journey. That's good. But what's been interesting has been the kind of finer detailed conversations about it. When I've done it with clients, we've always kind of gone through it with them and said, look, here's the reasons, here's the reasons, you know, and sometimes they can't, they can't fulfill the requirements. Like if you're a developer, then you've got to be able to execute the stuff because you wouldn't be able to write your code. Uh, but, you know, well, that's okay. Have you got a risk register? No. Okay. Start a document, document that that is a problem, and just say that you've accepted the risk. So suddenly they start getting, just by going through the process, you can get them into that security mindset, and hopefully they will maintain it. That's why, and that's why we've found that IASME works very well because that that sort of maps out the journey next, 
And it's very, very personal to every business because the first thing you do with IASME and you work with uh, with the certification bodies or there's, a, there's also a, a raft of... Well, when I say self-assessment, it's not really self-assessment because it's moderated. Yes, exactly. So, it's, uh, so somebody is actually looking over your shoulder to make sure that you're not just sort of marking your own homework as such. But the, the good thing um, there is it puts it into context and basically says, what's the risk profile of the business? Mm-hmm. And actually, this is the conversation I have with so many of the new... When, when the certification bodies are coming on board, um, we have a... Well, essentially, it's a quality control process. So not only do they have to go through the training, they also have to show, firstly, that they practice what they preach and that they can actually make their way through uh, um, an IASME assessment. Um, but also they have to um, do a reciprocal audit on one of the other people on the training course to show that uh, they're able to assess somebody's security uh, in the context of this other organization. That's clever. And be able to communicate you know, where the opportunities are and where the risks are. And the first part of that is to risk profile, to do a risk profile. And... During the education process, I find that so many organizations immediately say, oh, yes, they've got a very low risk profile because they've got all of these different controls and protective measures in place and say, no, 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 no. The risk profile is what is that organization doing? So that organization, it's, it's, it's not really re- that reliant on, on, on a lot of technology, uh, or if it's reliant on technology, it's only responsible to itself. Mm-hmm. So relatively low risk profile. Another organization, it's actually offering services. They're doing IT support for another organization. They actually are highly connected with other organizations, uh, in the, uh, possibly in a supply chain yep. or uh, offering services. So if their security is compromised, then so are their clients and customers. So they've got a much higher risk profile. Yeah. And as a result so of which... threat modeling. The threat modeling. As absolutely. well as risk profile. Very much so. Yeah. So, and that determines the level at which we then expect the assessors to look at the organization. I was, I mean, the original idea of IASME, and I, I was I, I was too sort of naive to think it could work like this, so it has yeah, ended up with, with, a, with a requisite level of detail, was essentially I wanted people to go into an organization, uh, give them a big hug and a cuddle, and see what kind of squeeze they got back. And whether they felt that this is someone, you know, this is an area, area of trust. Now we've translated that trust into uh, sort of, you know, looking to, you know, looking at the profile, looking, looking at the threat model uh, of, of the business. And, and the, uh, the IASME certificate. I mean, I, I hate talking about the certificates because it's talking, we want, what we want to talk, say is yes, this, organization is managing the security for itself and the community around it. It's not a tick box secure because that, that word security is meaningless. Call it an accreditation, you know, achieving that standard of maturity, not security, but maturity around understanding the threat, understanding the risk, understanding their systems, understanding what controls they can put in place, understanding what is, what is important. You know, there will be things that are important to them, but there will also be things that they don't think are, I always find this, things yes. that they don't think are important and that they have value to Absolutely. malicious actors. Absolutely. Although I don't want us to fall out over the word accreditation. No, you don't like that? That was just no, a helpful no, no, suggestion. No, no. <laughs> I, I, IASME accredits certification yes. bodies yeah, okay. to go yeah, out. Yeah. In, into, yeah. So, so we are, we are the quali- we're the quality control. My bad. I used to work for the SQA. <laughs> it's the end of the day. I, I did know that. <laughs>
Okay, Danny, so something else that I wanted to talk to you about was to, you know, let's go full circle and bring us up to date with with your current role, your current teaching role, which I know is something that we both share a passion for. So how do we go from the National Computing Centre to being Dr. Danny Dresner, Academic Coordinator for Cybersecurity in a university? Well, back in the, well, I suppose you call it the early noughties, um, you know, with the National Computing Centre role, uh, you know, you have a certain degree of privilege uh, and one hell of a lot of responsibility and you get asked to do you know, good stuff, which is great because I want to do good stuff. Um, uh, and hopefully the stuff I've learned along the way, if I can impart that uh, and, and pass that on, that's great. And I was asked to join an industrial liaison panel where essentially you went along uh, once a year and told the university what it ought to be teaching. What the, and being from a membership organisation with you know, hundreds of different organisations who need people who understand about computers, uh, then to be able to go into the Department of Computer Science and say what what they should be teaching, uh, that was a great opportunity. So I so I took it up. But um, I used to go every year, and I think about three years in, I'd been going there and banging the table and saying. You're not teaching anything about security, or as we call them in that, that, those in them days, it was called computer security. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a call or an email one day um, from a terrific person, Alex Walker, and she said, "We've got two issues, uh, or you know, sort of good and bad. What, uh, the uh, the bad news is we've got a hole in the timetable. Mm-hmm. The good news is uh, we've got some funding to actually fill it. Uh, would you like to come along and teach security?" Uh, and I said, you bet. Uh, and as a result of which, um, this was about, this would have been about 2004, uh, I started teaching. At that very same stage, um, it was Professor Bob Wood, who at the time was just about to leave Salford to set up the Department of Informatics at the newly joined University of Manchester, which was the amalgamation between UMIST and the Victoria University. And um, this idea of doing a essentially a PhD, workplace PhD, I, th- I found quite interesting. Um, not least because when you know when, when in Jewish law does life begin? It's when the fetus gets its PhD. <laughs> so I decided uh, this was an opportunity not to be missed, and started looking at you know with with all the you know the correct uh, you know ethical approval and scrutiny etc cetera, etc. Cetera. The kind of work that I was doing in different organisations mm-hmm. uh, in security consultancy, to um, I was you know part of that was kind of training, part of it was what essentially action research, going in and uh, improving and measuring and making sure that those improvements were actually being effective. Um, so I was going along, ended up with the this um, on this industrial liaison panel because of that expertise and security, or so they said, and then the PhD stuff a- a- arose. And they wanted me to teach as well. So they all sort of came together. And I started delivering this, uh, this module in computer security with a, with a colleague, uh, professor, um, Dr. Zhang. I think we were probably quite pioneering in as much as, uh, the way we split the module was for me to talk about risk management and to get people to understand as to why things were important. What were they looking after? What, you know, what were the core objectives? What were the business objectives which need to be protected? What were the asset, the information assets which needed to, uh, to be protected or to recover from business continuity? Uh, and then uh, my colleague Ning would then go on and teach about some of the tools and appliances that you could then use to mitigate those risks. 
uh, and that kind of worked very well um, and was working so well that they eventually said, well, could we expand this? And uh, we then developed a module in, well, we could then called it IT governance, but essentially uh, it's systems governance, um, where that looks at how that fits in with, well, more than just an organization uh, and the uh, the way it, the, it, it handles security, but to work out a kind of a sustainable model. Uh, of security, uh, which kind of involves, you know, the signing of responsibilities, uh, looks at computer, looks at computer architecture, uh, or security architecture, how you actually get that built in the first place, how you measure it, how you make sure you stay compliant in a, um, a an environment, um, which kind of probably has some external regulation involved. Uh, and throughout that, um, the socio-technical side of stuff, which I'm kind of really pleased to say that I was kind of using that, that as a term before it became trendy as it is today. You know, that sounds like it's very, it's both practical, but adaptable, isn't it? Because you're, is this a, 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 a standardized module? I mean, did everybody on the course have to go through it or was it optional? Oh, well, that's where I'm a little bit naughty because there is a taster. We have to, we have a kind of a taster session. Mm-hmm. We have a taster session. Uh, it, it's interesting. Oh, actually. the first hit's free, is it? it, it well, yes, basically <laughs> while, while, while the students make their decisions as to what they ought to take. Interestingly enough, I mean, that, that great big long title I have, academic coordinator. I mean, essentially that means it's my job to make sure that the, the mathematicians are talking to the sociologists, are talking to the computer scientists, are talking to the engineers, uh, or as, um, one of the professors I, I work closely with says uh, I'm a pimp. Uh, so essentially, I'm, I'm, I'm pimping security. I want people to I want people to buy it. I want people to live it. Mm-hmm. I want people to experience it. So it's not just for computing science students. Well, it, well, it is. Per se. Well, well, it's mostly computer science students. There will be mm-hmm. some people who might be doing uh, sort of mechanical engineering and, and the like. But so essentially, it's part of the school of computer science. Really, because what I am interested in is you know. Not all computer science students are going to be cybersecurity experts. They're going to go off and do different things. So it sounds like that section of the course you've got is adaptable to security in different things. They go off and they be a software developer. They've got that knowledge. They go off and they be a network engineer. They've still had that experience. Is that, that, that fair? This was absolutely the idea because, like I say, when I'm when I'm naughty is when I'm giving the introductory talk and trying to sell the unit, the the, the module to people. Uh, I always sort of say words along the lines of, you know, it's not compulsory, uh, but it should be, in the hope that people will miss all of it and just hear compulsory. Oh, I better take that <laughs> one. Uh, and to a certain extent, um, I know colleagues who have, who have to teach on the module or get involved also with the module have kind of begged me to. To, to put in some sort of entry criteria to reduce the numbers because mm. uh, we get anywhere from 40 to 60, sometimes 70 people. In fact, we think one year we even had 80 people on the module. Fairly significant numbers. Which is significant. And obviously, you know, so there's a lot of marking. It's very difficult as well to divide up into small, small enough groups when you want to do group work and, and, and teach them collaboration. But my attitude was that, I mean, I don't want anybody to fail. But I would rather somebody came on this module, uh, maybe even didn't do so well, yeah. but just got slightly bitten by the bug, which might not actually have any effect. But 10 years down the line, they've got a decision to make for a line of code, which can make all that difference. I mean, if you think about the, the, one of my favorite anecdotes is the bet. It was, a, I can't remember. I better not mention that the company in case I get it wrong, but I think it was the Western, the entire Western seaboard of the United States lost 
uh, it's telecommunications because they changed six. I mean, I, imagine the number of lines of code that might must involve, but they made changes to six lines, and that was enough for Trust that amazing sort of you know one trip after another from station to to, to station. Somebody who might have been on one uh, on a module where I'm talking security, stroke quality management, because I don't think you can really separate the two. Mm-hmm. Just that decision making, that, you know, and that, that's that's why I'm very interested in in the governance aspect of stuff. That's absolutely fascinating. So, Danny, look, thank you so much for being on the show. We will no doubt have you back on again. Because um, there's loads of other things, loads of stuff I want to talk to you about, frankly, that we've not covered. But uh, time is always a constraint. So thank you for your time. And uh, thank you, as always, listeners, for listening to us. And we will see you next time. And have a secure day.